The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, it's such a blessing to get to have your word and to be able to hear it explained, to understand it, and then by your grace be transformed by it. We pray, Father, you would help us make the most of this time. It's such limited time that we have set aside to contemplate your word in a deeper way like this, to seek to better understand it, to grapple with it, to know its implications for our lives, and to be washed with it, Father. We, we pray that this time would be the most productive possible. As we've worshipped you now through song, as, we, as we've worshipped you through giving of an offering and through our prayers, we pray that you would help us to continue to worship you by making us engaged with your word. Cause us to be fully attentive, to take seriously what it is you reveal here, and to seek to walk away different from your word than we were before we engaged with it. Pray, Father, that you would do that for your glory, and that out of our love for you and our valuing of you and our cherishing of you, that we would cherish your word. Specifically, Father, I pray that today uh, that you would help us see the, the source of joy in Revelation 18 and 19 that is probably lacking for most of us right now. Cause us to see what it means to rejoice in your judgment. And I pray that, that even now as we see the future rejoicing of the saints in your judgment of Babylon, I pray that you would cause us to experience some of that joy in the present. Make that a source of steady joy for us now, of, of celebration and of worship for you now. Pray that you would do that for your glory. I pray that you would do that out of your love for us. Cause us to be rightly changed by your word in this way. And Father, of course, for anybody here right now who will be hearing this passage preached, I pray that, Father, if there are any who don't know you, that today would be the day that they do come to know you, that they would be part of your people, part of your saints, of those who will praise you and celebrate the destruction of Babylon that last day rather than experience it themselves. All these things, Father, we're totally powerless to do, so we, we ask you to do it by your spirit uh, for your glory. I pray that uh, you would help me uh, proclaim this well, that you would help us listen to it well, and that you would, uh, uh, you would, be, you would be pleased to, to change us and transform us as a result. It's in your name we ask all these things, Jesus. Amen. Good morning. You know, when we put together the worship service on Sunday, what we do is we work with Brandon to pick songs for the service that go along well with the theme of the sermon or that develop the theme of the sermon in some way. Hopefully you've been able to notice that as you, you know, read the passage beforehand and hear the kind of songs that we sing on Sunday. This week was a, a little bit harder to do that because the, the big idea of the passage is God's people rejoicing, celebrating the destruction and disappearance of Babylon. In fact, as, as one commentator put it, what we have here in the beginning of Revelation 19 is, uh, is, is what you could call uh, a, quote, judgment doxology. A judgment doxology. Now, we get what a doxology is. We actually sing a song in church that we call doxology, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Doxology just comes from the Greek word uh, doxa, which means glory. Uh, so when we talk about a doxological psalm, we're talking about a psalm that ascribes glory to God, a song of, of praise to God. The interesting thing is there don't really seem to be 
many judgment doxologies in our repertoire of worship songs. Right? We don't really have songs that go, praise God from whom all judgments flow. But that wouldn't be inappropriate. In fact, that's the kind of song, or that's the kind of praise or worship, rather, that we find here at the beginning of, of Revelation 19. We have some songs, like the songs we sang today, that, that pair well with this theme, kind of like a, a glass of red wine would pair well with, a, you know, with, with steak. But we don't really have many songs that, that, that serve the steak itself, that, that focus on worshiping God, on praising God for his judgment, rejoicing in his judgment, celebrating his judgment. Why is that? It's kind of an interesting problem. The reason why I think that's the case is because there seems to be and you can disagree with this, but, you know, but at least you know, trying to consider why, why this is, it seems like there's a disconnect for us between our joy and God's judgment. There's a lot of things that we see God as being worthy of praise for. Certainly his grace is worthy of our praise. Certainly all the blessings we experience are worthy of his praise. But oftentimes we don't see his judgment as one of those things. We don't see his judgment as something to be thankful for, to rejoice in, to celebrate over. We may not feel as naturally moved to worship him for his wrath as we are for his grace. No doubt those are all, all those other things I mentioned, those are all good things to praise God for. We should rejoice in those things and worship him for them. But his judgment is one of those areas too. We should, we should be able to rejoice over his judgment and worship him for it. Uh, I think that's something that we're deficient in. As a result, I think it's also an area of our life where we could be experiencing joy, but we're not right now. You know, how would you like if I told you there's, there's a source of joy out there that you could tap into, you could experience more joy in your life now. There's another wellspring of worship there for your soul right now that you're either not experiencing at all or that your experience of is very limited. There is a source of joy like that. And that source of joy is, is God's judgment, specifically his future judgment. So by the time we leave today, I want there to be a, a bigger category in your heart for judgment doxology. And I want you to be able to experience some of that joy now. I want it to be a steady source of joy for you like it should be in your life now, as well as a source of worship for you. Hopefully that's what you want as well. Uh, the thesis of the sermon is that God's judgment will equal your joy. God's judgment will equal your joy, or God's judgment equals your joy. If that math doesn't add up to you, just you know, allow me to explain from the passage. We're going to look first at what the church is celebrating in the end, and then we're going to look at why they're celebrating it and who they're celebrating. So John, in, in his vision, he sees heavenly rejoicing in store for the saints. If you're a saint, that's you. And first, we're going to look at what you'll celebrate. Second, why you'll celebrate it. And third, who you'll celebrate. So point number one, what you'll celebrate. You can look at verse 20 with me. Here's the answer to the question, by the way. It's not a surprise. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Well, there you go, right there. You'll rejoice over God's judgment. That's the answer to the first point. I suppose I could probably just move on from there and go straight into the second point. Why will you celebrate that? But we'll, we'll pause for a second to consider this a little bit more because the passage does develop exactly what kind of judgment you'll be celebrating in the end. 
But before we move on to that, just as, you know, by way of a, of a brief recap here, who's the her that John is saying we're going to rejoice over? The her is Babylon. Yeah, it's, it, it's the prostitute. We've been looking at now over the, the past few weeks. In, in chapter 17, uh, we were introduced to this, this, uh, this character, the prostitute, who's, who's also named Babylon. She's sitting on the scarlet beast, which signified demonically influenced anti-God nations. And the prostitute, we, we understand to be a rebellious empire. We understand it to be the city of man, arrayed in deceptive beauty, exercising power over the nations. We've seen her seduce the nations into idolatry and all the sins of luxurious living with her beauty, with her power, with her prestige, with her wealth. In John's day, he would have certainly seen the prostitute Babylon to be the Roman Empire. And throughout human history, Babylon signifies all rebellious empires that rise up, that subjugate the nations, that persecute the church, and then fall. There have been many Babylons. Last week we heard uh, the angelic announcement of Babylon's judgment. And if you've studied history or if you've read the Old Testament, you know that Babylon was actually a historical empire that took the nation of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, into captivity in the Old Testament. And then, of course, Babylon was later destroyed by God himself. And as we heard last week, you know, many Old Testament passages about the fall of the historical Babylon are actually used as the, as the paint, I guess you could say, to paint the picture of the fall of future Babylon. So the imagery that we have here in, in Revelation 18 and 19, uh, John's taking his paintbrush, he's dipping it in, in the, the paint of Old Testament prophecy of the, of the fall of the historical Babylon, and he's using that paint to paint a picture of the fall of the future Babylon, of the fall of all anti-God empires throughout history until Christ comes again. We saw how severe her judgment was last week. She was completely leveled by God. And then we also saw how the kings, of the, mer- uh, the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, and the merchants of the sea, they all mourned Babylon's loss. They wept and they wailed over her destruction. Not because they were broken over her sin, not because they were concerned about all of the people who were experiencing God's judgment, but because of the loss that it meant for them. They were no longer going to be able to profit over Babylon's evil, and they also feared their own judgment. Now, today's vision, it picks up after the lament of the merchants of the sea. So we're, we're standing in the future with John in his vision. We're standing in the future. We're looking back at the destruction of the city of man. And what we see in stark contrast to all of the weeping and the wailing of the kings and the merchants is rejoicing. Not weeping, but rejoicing. Celebration in heaven over the destruction of the prostitute. Now, if you have an ESV, verse 20, it looks like it's a continuation of the merchants of the sea speaking here. Uh, it's not. It's, it's likely a different voice that we're hearing in verse 20. Perhaps it's one of the angels that was mentioned earlier in the chapter, or perhaps it's John himself speaking. But look at verse 20 with me. Again, this follows after the lament of the merchants of the sea. Verse 20 Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Who's called to rejoice? First, it's heaven. He says, rejoice, O heaven. By that, I take it to mean all all persons in the heavenly realm, including angelic beings. And then it's saints, all those who are saved, God's holy ones. And then the apostles and the prophets. 
likely referring to the actual apostles and prophets. Again, what are they rejoicing over or celebrating? They're celebrating Babylon's judgment. Now, in the following verses, the, uh, the nature of Babylon's judgment, it's, it's fleshed out a little bit more for us. It gives us a better idea of what kind of judgment is being celebrated here exactly. Verse 21, John continues in his vision. He says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. This image, what does that image make you think of, by the way? Near that language, great millstone thrown into the sea? Probably makes you think of Jesus' words, right? And, uh, and that's not wrong. It's using the, the, the same imagery. There, there may actually be a connection there, too. But it harkens back even further to the, uh, the book of Jeremiah and his prophecy about the destruction of the historical empire of Babylon. Jeremiah said to Sariah, the brother of a scribe Baruch, he said in Jeremiah 51, O Yahweh, you have said concerning this place, Babylon, that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her. So again, the portrait that's painted here in Revelation 18, it's painted with the paint of Old Testament prophecy. John's brush, it's dipped in Jeremiah's prophecy of the fall of the historical Babylon, which was envisioned by throwing a stone into the Euphrates to sink down to the bottom to rise no more. And then that paint, it's used to paint the fall of the ultimate city of man, of the eschatological Babylon. So you could say, as the historical Babylon fell, so too will the greater Babylon it represents. Now we go back to John's canvas in Revelation 18, and we read the metaphor again, verse 21. A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Hey, what's this metaphor? What uh, what are we supposed to take away from this? Babylon here, it's represented by a great stone, by by a stone that was likened to a a great millstone. Millstones, they were were probably uh, donut-shaped stones, uh, that were used to grind grill, they, uh, grind grain, sorry, not grill. And, and they came in different sizes. Some, some were small enough to be operated by humans. Some you needed an animal to, 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 uh, to turn. And because this is a, a great millstone, this is likely one of the bigger stones that would have required an animal to operate it. And one commentator suggested that these millstones may have been four to five feet in diameter and a foot thick, weighing thousands of pounds. So this rock, it's like one of those. It's like a great millstone. It's, it's a big rock, in other words. Perhaps conveying something of the greatness of Babylon or maybe how dramatically it's going to sink when it's thrown into the water. And in this metaphor, we see a, a mighty angel. He must have been mighty. He must have been powerful to throw a rock like this, right? He picks up the rock, Babylon, and he chucks it into the sea. So there's, there's great power behind its overthrow. And I want, you, I want you to try to see what John's seeing in, in your own mind's eye. What is a big rock, imagine a big rock like that, what does a big rock like that do when it hits the water? Splash, 
right? Huge splash. And then what happens after that? It goes down to the bottom, right? It splashes and it sinks. You have a huge, impressive explosion of water as the giant rock hits the sea and then it rockets down to the bottom. And so, or as the CSB puts it, in this way will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Found no more. That's an emphatic expression in Greek. In other words, it's not coming back. It's gone. Other translations say Babylon will never be found again. Like a massive rock being dropped into the deepest part of the ocean, it's going to sink down, 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 all the way down to the depths. You can watch it you know, from the surface as it's propelling furiously down, getting smaller and smaller and smaller until it's completely out of sight, never to be seen again. It's never coming back. It's never returning. And so this metaphor, it conveys that the great city Babylon will be powerfully overthrown and its destruction and disappearance is going to be two things. It's going to be violent and it's going to be permanent. Violent and permanent. So in the end, you will celebrate the violent and permanent destruction of Babylon. It's fleshed out a little bit more. The nature of her judgment is fleshed out a little bit more here. More Old Testament paint shoes than we have time to discuss. You heard some of it actually read during the this, this service, though. I'll just mention that the, uh, the paintbrush here, it's dipped into God's judgment of nations in history, like the nation of Tyre, or even like the nation of Judah, as you heard read from Jeremiah earlier. And that paint is used to paint a portrait of Babylon's destruction, the destruction of this great anti-God empire, the city of men. Verse 21 Mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. You see a theme there. Each of those areas, right? No more. We'll be heard in you no more. We'll be seen in you no more. We'll be found in you no more. No more. Same emphatic expression in Greek, by the way, that we saw in the, uh, in the metaphor of the angel. It's gone, right? Permanently. The music of musicians will be heard no more. There's no more entertainment in the city. No more pleasures to be had in the city. There's also no more craftsmen to be found in the city. One commentator said, quote, the presence of various crafts was an essential feature of the ancient city. That crafts typically included metalworking, brick making, glass making, carpentry, perfume making, tent making, spinning, weaving, tanning, dyeing, pottery making, carving, sculpture, stonemasonry. Uh, stone Where are they? They're all gone. They're all gone. All the workers, all the crafts, all the occupations, gone. No more economic activity, never again. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. That would have been a sound of everyday life, like cars driving by today or kids playing outside. The sounds of everyday life have ceased. It's silent. There's no more lamps lit at night. I mean, why would there be? There's nothing to see. There's nothing to do at night. And we get this even today when you see cities lit up at night. 
right? You see life. But a dark city at night is a lifeless city. A lightless city is a lifeless city. It's desolate. And it says the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. There's no more happy occasions like the bark of a tree being stripped off. All joy is being stripped away. No more joy to be had in Babylon. As each domain of city life is surveyed, we hear the same emphatic language repeated over and over again. This will be found no more. It will never be again. It's like a bell striking each time. Bong, no more. Bong, no more. No more. Every single thing over. What's the point of the list? Well, it vividly portrays at this rebellious empire of man, which was once very powerful and thriving, is permanently and totally gone. Does anything survive? Does any part of her continue? No, nothing. It's all over forever. So again, what you'll celebrate in the end, it's not just the temporary disappearance of Babylon, it's the permanent disappearance of Babylon. And in light of this list, what you'll celebrate in the end is not merely the partial disappearance of Babylon, but its total disappearance. Now don't misunderstand me, that the partial destruction of Babylon, that would be worth celebrating, I think. As with the temporary destruction of Babylon, that would be worth celebrating too. But a far greater occasion for rejoicing is found here in this passage. It's the total destruction, the permanent end of Babylon. That's what you'll rejoice over in the end. Today, Babylon is, is alive and well, right? But Revelation says that this will not always be the case. The city of man is destined for destruction. It's destined to be an eternal wasteland. In fact, we see the permanency of Babylon's destruction reinforced again later on in the chapter in verse 3 of, of Revelation 19. It says, A great multitude in heaven cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. You know, I was driving over to Monterey yesterday and there was, we, we saw this uh, pillar of smoke going up from, from the side of the road. And you know, when you see a plume of smoke like that, you automatically know that there's a a fire, right? And sure enough, as we drove by, there was a, a farmer was burning, you know, a bunch of sticks. I'm not quite sure why. He was burning a bunch of sticks, and uh, you, could, you could see the flames from the road, and there was the column of smoke going up, right? You just imagine looking at a giant city, and the entire city is, is up in smoke. There's smoke pouring up from the city. Obviously, it's because the city is on fire, right? It's burning. And what we see here in this passage is that that smoke is going to continue to rise forever, which means that that city is going to continue to burn forever. In other words, Babylon is going to be destroyed forever. Again, it's never going to be re rebuilt. It's never going to recover from its destruction. It's always going to be burning. It's always going to remain destroyed. Now again, at this point in the sermon, all we're trying to understand is what exactly is being rejoiced over here. What exactly you'll celebrate in the end. And what we've seen thus far is that it's going to be a celebration of God's judgment over Babylon, specifically of her violent, total, and permanent destruction. Violent, total, 
and permanent. This passage, it gives three reasons why God has judged her like this. If you go back to verse 23, there are three reasons why God's turned Babylon into an everlasting wasteland. Again, just elaborating more on this judgment that we're celebrating. First, it says, verse 23, after going through the list of all the things that are no more, it says, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth. That was the first reason. Those who did business with the prostitute and profited from her evil were the rulers. They were the rich people. They were the powerful people. The first reason God judges Babylon probably has something to do with the arrogance or the pride of these people as great ones. Their self-glorification, perhaps. In fact, John, you might be drawing here from one of God's oracles against the nation of Tyre in the book of Isaiah. Where we read in Isaiah 23, the prophet says, Who has purposed this against Tyre? the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. Yahweh of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Greg Beale in his commentary said this allusion to Isaiah 23, quote, implies that the merchants and the system supporting them are to be judged because they gave glory to themselves and not to God. They were concerned solely with their own greatness. So first reason for Babylon's judgment is the self-glorification of her merchants and her support of it. Second reason, verse 23, is because all nations were deceived by your sorcery. Sorcery, right? Her sorcery stands for her deceptive power. She deceived the nations by the allure of her luxury and her beauty and her power, her prestige, It's definitely dark magic. We see many fall still under that spell today. And she deceived them into what? She deceived them into false worship, into idolatry, and into all the sins of luxurious living, like acquiring wealth illegitimately and using wealth for sinful purposes and all the self-glorification that comes with wealth and luxury. She deceived the nations and she's judged for her deception. And then lastly, verse 24, it says, In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, of all who have been slain on earth. In her it was found. That's such a gruesome image, right? That in the city, you're walking through the city and you're finding blood. The blood of God's prophets, the blood of God's people. And no, it's the blood of all who have been slain on earth. Not just Christians. Everyone who's been murdered, go to Babylon. You'll find their blood there. Obviously, there's no single historical empire that's responsible for everybody in human history who's been murdered, which is one of the many things that keys us into the fact here that this is not meant to be taken literally, as as is much else of what we see here in Revelation. Babylon stands for the city of man as a whole. And in that sense, the city of man as a whole is responsible for every single human life taken on this earth. And she will be judged by God because of her persecution or murder of God's people and because of her grave injustice against all people. So when we step back and we look at the rejoicing in this passage, what is the church celebrating exactly? It's God's judgment of Babylon, the city of man, yes. But more specifically, it's God's violent, total, and permanent destruction of the city of man because of the self-glorification it supported, 
it's deception, and it's bloodshed. Let me say that again because that's kind of the main, this is the, this is the first point, this is what it's about. What's being celebrated and what you're going to celebrate in the future is God's violent, total, and permanent destruction of the city of man because of the self-glorification it supported, its deception, and its bloodshed. I just want to ask you right now, does that make your heart leap for joy? Do you feel moved to worship God and praise him for that? In the end, you will. And I would say it should now. Let's, let's talk about why. Point number two, why you'll celebrate. Why you'll celebrate. I think it's important to note before we move on too much further here that you know, whether or not you're going to celebrate Babylon's destruction has everything to do with the kind of person you are. Has everything to do with the kind of person you are. Remember, not everyone rejoices. In fact, the rejoicing of God's people here, it's positioned in Revelation 18 in stark contrast to the weeping and the wailing of the great ones of the earth who profited from Babylon's evil. Not everyone's going to be celebrating. There are many who will be mourning. Verse 19, the verse right before the one where our passage picks up today, the merchants of the sea, they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. They're, they're uh, wailing, they're, they're bemoaning, they're decrying the destruction of Babylon. But then in verse 20, we hear a different group called to praise the very same thing. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. There are only two kinds of, of people in the world. Everybody falls into one of, of two categories here. There are those who mourn Babylon's destruction, and there are those who rejoice over it. Those who mourn it, and those who celebrate it. For one group, there's loss, there's terror, there's tears. For the other, it means joy, praise, worship. Most important question for you, of course, is, is which group are you in, right? Are you with those who mourn or with those who celebrate? Those who are called to rejoice are God's saints. That's the word that's used. They're God's saints. And contrary to the Catholic Church's view of sainthood, the Bible actually teaches that all of God's people are saints. So are you a saint? The word saint, it comes from the Greek word which means holy. So the saints, they're God's holy ones. A big part of the concept of holiness is this idea of, of set-apartness, that you're set apart for God, you're set apart in righteousness. You'll be able to tell, by the way, if you're set apart for God by the way you live. You'll be able to tell if you're a saint by the holiness of your life, right? But if the answer to that is yes, if you are a saint, and I pray, I pray that it is for you, the Bible is very clear that you were not always a saint. The Bible teaches that we were all, at one point, unholy. Not holy, but unholy. You were not set apart for God. You were not set apart in righteousness. Instead, you, devoted, you were devoted to yourself, to idols, and you were enslaved in sin. And as sinners, Babylon's judgment 
for you would mean mourning. It would mean loss. It would mean tears. It would mean terror. Just like it meant that for all of the merchants of the sea and of the earth and for the kings. The violent and total and permanent destruction of the city of man that we just heard described would mean your violent and total and permanent destruction. That was you at one point. We all participated in the world system. We all supported self-glory at one point. We all participated in the deception. We all participated in the bloodshed. That great judgment is what you deserve. But of course, the, the good news, and it is such good news, is that the sovereign creator, who will one day judge the rebellious city of man, actually entered into the city of man to be judged in your place. Entered into the city of man, into Babylon, to have his body broken, like we're going to remember later, and to have his blood shed. He came to be one of the many who died in Babylon. Why? It was in that wicked city, city of man, that Jesus, our Messiah, you could find hanging on a cross with his body broken, flogged to a pulp, his blood staining the ground, his blood dripping on the cross. If you were to go in that city, you would find his blood there with the blood of many others who had been shed. It was his violent destruction on the cross that paid the penalty for our sin. It was God's judgment of him in your place. The violent destruction that you deserved, Jesus came to face. He faced it on the cross in Babylon. He took the true and just judgment of God for your participation in Babylon, for all of your own self-glory, for all of your own deception, for all of your own hatred. And he did that so that you could be made holy. So that you, an unholy person, could be made holy in his sight. So that all of your unholiness could be forgiven. Justice against it satisfied. And so that your unholy heart could die with him and be recreated into a holy heart like his through his resurrection. That's the good news. That God actually came to die in Babylon so that you could be converted from sinners to saints. He came to die in Babylon so you could be converted from a sinner to a saint. And the Bible says that if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus to save you, then God has done that. He's redeemed you from a sinner to a saint. And then in the end, you will be among those who celebrate the violent and total and permanent destruction of Babylon rather than those who mourn it and experience it. So it's the saints who rejoice. Ask yourself, are you a saint? If you're a saint, then you will rejoice. That's what's revealed to us here in Revelation 18. And there's many reasons, I think, why you will rejoice. Verse 23 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints, and apostles and prophets, for, because, God has given judgment for you against her. For God has given judgment for you against her. What does that mean? It's actually really hard to tell. 
uh, to be honest. This is uh, the latter part of verse 20. It's very challenging to translate, and uh, I'm not sure which way is best. Uh, The ESV is more accurate. The verse may mean that God's judgment was a judgment in our favor. In other words, that it's, it's against her, it's not against us. She's found to be in the wrong, not you. So God's judgment, it's, it's your vindication. The NIV renders it differently. It says, rejoice, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. If that's more accurate, then the verse is getting at the idea of lex talionis, or as, as one source puts it, the law of exact retaliation. Right, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It'd be similar to what we heard last week in verse 6 where the heavenly voice said, pay Babylon back as she herself has paid back others. Either way, whether the verse calls God's people to rejoice because uh, his judgment at Babylon vindicates them or because Babylon's now paid back for everything she's done to God's people, both are true and both are worthy of rejoicing. Now, following the description of Babylon's judgment, we arrive in verses 1 through 2 at what the commentary I mentioned earlier calls a, quote, judgment doxology. A judgment doxology. Here it is. Are you ready? Verse 1 of Revelation 19, John says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. He hears what he describes to be a loud voice of a great multitude. A loud voice of a great multitude. So there's a large crowd of people, many, many people rejoicing in heaven, perhaps angels, perhaps saints, perhaps both. And it's loud, he says. Loud, that, loud maybe because of the number of people rejoicing, or loud because of the, of the volume of their voices, because of the depth and of the magnitude of their joy. And they're praising God, saying, verse 1, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? Verse 2, for his judgments are true and just. They're true, that is, they're correct, or in accordance with reality, like one put it, and they're just, they're deserved, they're fair. His true and just judgments, they mean salvation. They mean that all of the victims of evil and oppression and injustice are actually rescued and that the forces of evil are defeated, so they mean salvation. His true and just judgments reveal his glory. To use Piper's definition of glory, it's God, God's being shown to be intrinsically great, intrinsically valuable, intrinsically beautiful for having executed true and just judgments. And his true and just judgments display his power. They were demonstrations of great might. And so, verse 1, we hear the loud cry of the great multitude, Hallelujah, salvation and glory belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. And they delineate a specific true and just judgment. For He has judged the great prostitute, corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. The prostitute is described as the one who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Her sexual prostitution, it's an image of spiritual prostitution, of idolatry. Probably included, by the way, actual sexual immorality, but it's not limited to that. We're talking about how she corrupted mankind with her idolatry. 
corrupted in the moral sense of morally ruined the earth, made evil the earth. Her judgment is true and just. It was correct and deserved. And then it also says that God's servants are avenged, specifically those who were killed for their faith. There's equity now, in other words. The scales are balanced. Back in Revelation 6, if you remember, when we were working through the, the seven seals, the first judgment cycle, in the fifth seal, breaking of the fifth seal, we heard the martyred saints cry out. In Revelation 6.10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then we saw, if you remember, in the breaking of the sixth seal, the day of the Lord came, and that was God's answered cry to the martyred saints. And here we also find, for those martyred saints, the satisfaction of their longing to be avenged. The fulfillment of that deep desire for them results in joy and celebration. I want to just pause here to ask, we're, we're talking about celebration, we're talking about joy. The main idea of the sermon is that God's joy, or God's judgment, equals your joy. What is joy? When we talk about joy, what is it exactly? Joy, I think here's one good way to put it. Joy is the happiness you experience when your deepest desires are fulfilled. It's the gladness you experience when your deepest desires are fulfilled. What desires do you think are fulfilled by God's judgment? There are several. I just want you to consider these for a moment. And even if you don't remember these, that's okay. I, just, I want you more to feel the cumulative weight of them, to feel the, the effect of them, of you know, considering what deep longings of your heart are satisfied by God's judgment. Just hear these and, and, and savor these for a moment. Number one, your desire for the completion of God's saving work will be fulfilled. All his people, rescued once for all, and all his enemies defeated forever. Rejoice over that. Number two, your desire for the prostitute's immorality to end will be fulfilled. She will no longer corrupt the earth with her immorality, with her idolatry. If you love God, if you desire his glory alone, if you want him to be honored and you detest all the honor and worship that's given to other things instead, then rejoice. It all ends. Number three, your desire for the abolition of all the evil that flows from Babylon will be fulfilled. One day, all the deception, all the illegitimate gain, all the bloodshed, all the oppression, all the evil that comes from her will cease. Rejoice over that. Number four, your desire for justice against the wicked empire of man will be fulfilled. The text says he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. We hate, rightly so, we hate when justice isn't satisfied. I don't know about you, I hate hearing about stories of murderers who are sentenced to life in prison rather than having their own life taken for taking the life of another precious image bearer of God. To have somebody's family member, friend, parent, sibling, child, to have their life taken and then to not lose their life for that. We want justice to be satisfied. 
We want the precious image bearers of God who have been so grievously wronged to be rightly avenged. And on that day they will be, the Bible says. Rejoice over that. Justice is finally satisfied. Your desire to be vindicated, number five, by the way, your desire to be vindicated will be fulfilled. Your desire to have the prostitute shown to be in the wrong and God's people to be shown to be in the right and have her convicted for all her evils against you. Rejoice over that. Number six, your desire for God's name to be vindicated will be fulfilled. You know, while the prostitute continues to thrive and God's people continue to suffer, his justice might be called into question, right? Will he ever, will he ever hold Babylon to account? Is she going to get away with all this? Will the death of God's own children go unpunished? Right? If you love God, if you care about the honor of his name, then you will deeply desire for him to prove himself just, for him to be vindicated against all appearance or accusation of injustice. And on that day, he will rejoice over that. I'll give you one more, number seven. Your desire for the beginning of the new world will be fulfilled with the end of the old. Leon Morris put it well. He was actually partially quoting someone else. He said, quote, The destruction of the great whore is but the prelude to the new era. Their hallelujah rings out the old, but also rings in the new. Their hallelujah rings out the old, but it also rings in the new. The old order of Babylon must pass away before the new order can come. So seven reasons. I had to pick seven. It's Revelation. Revelation 7 is the number of fullness or completeness, right? No, it, didn't, it doesn't have to be seven. But just seven reasons. Seven reasons why God's judgment of the city of man means joy for you. Why God's judgment equals your joy. Remember, joy is the happiness we experience when our deepest desires are fulfilled. Those are seven desires. I hope you have. Seven desires that are fulfilled by the true and just judgments of God against the city of man. God's judgment will equal your joy. God's judgment equals your joy. Now, the final point I want us to consider more briefly before we leave this passage is how this joy is expressed exactly, or what this joy results in. The answer is worship. The celebration of Babylon's destruction is a celebration of someone. It's a celebration of the one who destroyed Babylon. And so with that, let's move on to the third point. Point number three, who you'll celebrate. Who you'll celebrate. I want you to take a moment to just think of someone who served you recently, who's brought you joy recently. Try and picture that person in your mind, someone who served you, someone who's brought you joy. I just want you to ask yourself, what was the response of your heart to that person when they brought you joy? How were you moved towards that person? Did you feel compelled to thank them? Did you cherish them in your heart? For the Christian, joy and worship, they go hand in hand. Where you find joy for the Christian, you also find 
worship. Why is that? You know why that is? It's because everything worth rejoicing over comes from God. Everything. Everything worth rejoicing over comes from God. Everything you're thankful for, you're thankful to Him. Everything you're thankful for, you're thankful to Him. And so the right expression of joy is to praise and value the one who made you joyous. Christian joy results in worship. And that's what we see here. We see their joy producing praise. Their joy in God's judgment, it it moves them to celebrate. To celebrate God. It's a wellspring of worship for them. Let's go back to verse 2 for a minute. The great multitude crying out, they're saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. For this, they're crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! What does that mean? We use that word in, in English. It's a popular word. We actually just sang it in one of our songs earlier today. As a fun fact, you know, just thought I'd throw this out there. This doesn't really have to do with the meaning of this passage. You know, in some English Bibles, this is the only place in the entire Bible where you'll actually find the word hallelujah in English. Revelation 19, only place you'll find it. That doesn't mean that's the only place the word hallelujah occurs. It's actually far from it. You know, hallelujah, it's, it's a Hebrew word, and it's often translated in, in the Old Testament in your translations as praise the Lord. Lord being all uppercase, L-O-R-D, Lord. And it's in all uppercase because it's standing for God's name in Hebrew, which is Yahweh. We often translate this as praise the Lord, but here in, in Revelation 19, it's actually translated hallelujah because the Greek text of Revelation spells out the Hebrew word just like we're spelling it out now in English. But the word, it's, it's a composite of two words. Hallelujah, it's, it's a composite of hallelujah, which is in Hebrew a call to praise, and then Yah, which is an abbreviation of the name Yahweh. So hallelujah means praise Yah. Praise Yahweh. That's why your Old Testament translations translate it, praise the Lord, Lord, all uppercase. Praise Yahweh. So all that to say, this massive crowd, they're crying out, hallelujah. They're crying out, praise Yah. Praise Yahweh. Why are they praising Yahweh? He's the only one to praise for Babylon's judgment. He's the one who did it. The total, permanent, violent destruction and disappearance of the wicked city of man is all God's doing. It's all Yahweh's work. Yahweh deserves all the credit. He deserves all the praise. He deserves all the honor for it. And he is so worthy of it. Verse 3, once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. The angelic beings, they're praising God for his judgment at Babylon too. I don't know if you remember the 24 elders and the four living creatures from our study uh, earlier on in Revelation. We were introduced to them back in, uh, in Revelation 4 after the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And we actually don't see them again in Revelation after this. Uh, this is their last time on the stage, so to speak. Uh, if you recall from the sermon on Revelation 4, the 24 elders, they're, uh, they're, they're angelic beings with power. And the four living creatures, they were magnificent angels that shared in the likeness and grandeur of God's creation. 
And uh, in Revelation 4, we saw them worshiping God as creator. In Revelation 5, we saw them worshiping Jesus as the Savior who could fulfill God's redemptive plan. And now we see these great angels worshiping the king of the universe again, but for something else. Where are they worshiping her for now? Verse 4. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Amen to what? Amen meaning let it be so, or affirming or agreeing with what they, what they just heard. Let what be so? Either verses 1 through 3 on the judgment of Babylon, or just the last verse talking about the permanent destruction of Babylon. Either way, these great angelic beings are saying hallelujah. They're praising Yahweh for his judgment. They're worshiping him for his judgment too. And the passage ends with a call for everybody to do what they're doing. (laughs) It's a call for all those who know him to worship him as well for this. Verse five, from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Praise our God, all you his servants. We're not sure who this voice is, by the way. Uh, One source so that we can at least tell the voice is God's approval since it's coming from the throne. But more important than who the voice is is what the voice says. Right? This is a call to worship. A call to worship for all of God's people who are described as his servants or his slaves. And as those who fear him, or those who reverence him, those who obey him, all of them, small and great, of high standing, of low standing. As one commentator said, uh, those of, quote, low status and high status, respectively, which can be translated, those of every station in life are to praise him. That encompasses everyone. That encompasses you. All of God's people will rejoice and praise him and worship him and celebrate him for his judgment. God's judgment will equal your joy, and your joy will bring you to your knees in worship. It will produce a hallelujah from your lips. Praise Yahweh. His judgment fulfills your deep desires, and the happiness you experience will result in your celebration of him. He's worthy of it. Now in closing, I just want to say briefly, the focus of John's vision here is on the future rejoicing of the saints. So if you've been made a saint through the Savior's suffering in Babylon, then you will rejoice and worship God too. What will you celebrate? God's violent, total, and permanent destruction of the city of man, which it deserves for the self-glorification it supported, all of its deception, and all of its bloodshed. That's what you're going to celebrate. Why will you celebrate it? You'll celebrate because of the unimaginable happiness that flows from the fulfillment of your deep desires. Your deep desires for God's saving work to be completed, for Babylon's idolatry and evil to end, for justice to be satisfied, for God's name and for his people to be vindicated, and for the beginning of the new world. You'll rejoice. You will celebrate. And who are you going to celebrate for that? Yahweh, the one responsible, the only one responsible for Babylon's great judgment. You will worship him along with the heavenly crowd of people, of his people, of angels. You'll be filled with joy, and that joy is going to flow forth in praise. I hope minimally there's a category in your heart now for, uh, 
for judgment doxologies. There should be, I hope. God's judgment's going to equal your joy. Now, even though it's a future joy that's revealed in our passage, some of that should spill over into your life now. You know, when you know that something joyous is in store for you, when you know that happiness that fulfills your deep desires awaits you, you experience happiness now. You know, if you got a job that you were initially excited about, think back to how it felt when you accepted that offer. Right? You were still in a job that you didn't enjoy very much, but you knew another job was coming, and you were happy in, in anticipating that. You're still working your old job. You haven't started the new one yet. But the happiness you knew was coming made you happy now. Right? If you're married, you can think back to the days of your engagement. You didn't have a spouse yet, but the happiness you knew was coming made you so happy now. So happy because you knew what happiness was coming. In the same way, the happiness that you know is coming with God's judgment of Babylon should make you happy now. The celebration that awaits should make you celebrate now. It should be a steady source of joy for you. A steady source of celebration and worship for you. Even while Babylon is still alive and well, you can rejoice in God's judgment of her because you know it's coming. And you can worship him for it. You can sing loudly. Even today, you can sing from the bottom of your heart, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are just and true. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us do just that. Cause us, Father, in light of the happiness that we know is coming with your great judgment of the wicked city of man, all of that means all the deepest longings of our heart which will be fulfilled by your glorious and beautiful justice. We pray, Father, that you will cause some of that future joy to spill over now into the present. Cause the happiness that we know is coming to make us happy now, to be a constant source of joy in our life and to be a constant source of worship for you. You are worthy of being praised for your great judgment. Your judgment is, being, is worth rejoicing over. Your judgment truly does equal our joy. I pray, Father, that we would rejoice and that we would worship. For your glory, now of your love for us, I ask that you would do this. It's in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.